Welcome to The Road Back to You. Looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram, I'm Suzanne Stabile. And I'm Ian Crun. And we're so glad that you're listening today. All right, people, I can't tell you how excited I am to be here today, particularly with my pal, Suzanne Stabile. How are you doing, Suzanne? I'm doing really great. How about you? I'm doing really well. And our, our engineer and our pal, our sort of everything dude, Jim yeah. Chafee, is here today, and he's keeping us on track, isn't he? Yeah, it's not an easy job. No, no, no. He's really, he's like sweating. Herding cats. Herding cats. Wow, we just said that at the same time. Know, that was a little scary. creepy, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, we also have a dear friend of mine on the program today on our podcast. I have known, gosh, I don't know how long I've known Michael, 20 plus years. He's a therapist. Um, he's an author. His name is Michael Cusick. He's the author of the book, Surfing for God, Discovering the Divine Desire Beneath Sexual Struggle. And I want to tell you something about Michael. Um, Michael is, I'd say, in the the pantheon of the top five best psychotherapists that I know in the world. Wow, that's a big something. And I've seen all the others professionally, <laughs> like as a client, and I can just tell you he's the best. Yeah. No, I, I really mean you. that. I really mean that. I mean, as a therapist, I'm, I'm pretty picky, and I got to tell you, this guy is game on. Well, I've only known Michael for two years, but um, I just have a ton of respect and affection for him. He's just a great guy. He is, and a lot of wisdom is going to come at us today, and he's a... He's really a, a good student of the Enneagram. And Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you to both of you. It's really a thrill to talk with you. And, and I wish we could be together physically, but this is great. Yeah, man. And I can see that it's a, another sunny day in downtown Denver, Colorado. Indeed, it is. Blue skies. Nice. It's a nice day in Nashville, too. Yeah. Michael, um, we've uh, known each other a long, long time. We've spent a lot of time talking about you know, the deeper things of life, about the search for meaning and identity and learning how to be a, 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 a whole person in the world. Tell people a little bit about who you are, what you're about as a therapist, the things that you focus on, and just kind of introduce yourself to our folks. Yeah, I am on a professional basis. I make a living as a psychotherapist, and I'm also an ordained minister. And the organization uh, that I founded 18 years ago is called Restoring the Soul. And we do intensive counseling where we meet with folks for three hours a day for two weeks. We started out working exclusively with uh, clergy, missionaries, nonprofit leaders that would come in from around the world to the beautiful destination of Colorado. And um, four years ago, when my book was released, uh, I stepped back from that. I'm still doing that part time. But we have a staff of people that uh, do intensive counseling, which is a very spiritually transformational opportunity. Um, and I speak and I write and develop resources about spiritual transformation. And my niche in particular is uh, about addiction and how addiction uh, is both uh, a sign of our human brokenness, but also a doorway into personal transformation and deeper intimacy with uh, God, with our own sense of self and greater capacity for intimacy with others. Now, having said that, those are kind of my credentials and what I do. But really, uh, I'm a man who uh, I identify myself as a as a broken man who's on an ongoing journey toward wholeness. Um, I speak and write out of my own story of abuse and addiction, 
both addictions to alcohol and sex and performance and lots of other things. And um, it's out of that out of that uh, crucible of my own life and what I've learned about God and transformation that I hope uh, is what's richest offered to folks. You know, um, my husband, Joe, you do know Joe. And um, he um, is bilingual in English and Spanish, spent some summers getting a master's degree in Mexico. And he talks about how, as a young Catholic priest, it was so much easier to preach to the people in central Mexico than it was in Dallas, Texas, or other places in the country. And he thought it was because so many of those folks found themselves in what Richard Rohr, Joe, or perhaps the two of you would call a one-down position. And when you talk about what you do and where you come from as a broken man, I'm just so aware that when we are teaching the Enneagram, when we teach to people who know they're broken, they get it fast and take it deeper more quickly than people who don't yet identify as broken. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you have to dismantle people's defenses and, and try to, you know, get behind the screen, um, you know, into the operating system, that, that's a lot of energy, you know, it's a lot of energy, which may be, it's why Richard says, you know, that he feels like it's a, an easier task in the second half of life. I'm not always sure I agree with him on that, right. but I can see his point. You yeah, know? me too. Hey, Michael, you're uh, from, from psychotherapist to psychotherapist talk for a second. Cause I'm always interested in, in talking to therapists about the Enneagram because, you know, it is a sort of a, in some ways, a, a, an, an anomaly, right? It's not a, a, a sort of a scientifically validated psychometric test like the you know, the Minnesota multiphasic inventory or, you know, uh, some other kind of, you know, uh, personality typology. And, you know, sometimes we get resistance from people like, come on, man, seriously, like this ancient wisdom thing. This is like hocus pocus, abracadabra stuff. This can't be right. Can you just share a little bit about from your perspective as a, as a therapist, like how the Enneagram, you know, what you think of it and how you kind of, if you use it in your practice and your own personal life, like what, what do you think of this thing? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, the, the Enneagram has been a powerful instrument in my own life. When I met Suzanne and Joe, where Ian, you and I and Suzanne and Joe were all speaking at a conference two years ago, uh, I, was, I was deeply, deeply touched by the teaching on the Enneagram. And I would go so far as to say that it literally changed and healed a component of my marriage, which had been a longstanding issue. So I, I think the Enneagram is not just an instrument like people think about the Myers-Briggs or the MMPI, as you suggested, but it's actually a spiritual tool that has the capacity to be both a scalpel and a healing balm at the same time. Um, it, it helps me to understand uh, the, the ways that brokenness has played out and the ways that I've taken uh, matters into my own hands to preserve and protect myself to get my needs met, but it also becomes this healing balm that is a very deep affirmation of who we truly are in our essence. And uh, in terms of getting clarity and understanding about myself, my heart, and my wife's heart, it was really a breakthrough point. And uh, I also want to just comment on something Suzanne said uh, at the very top about Joe as a priest. And, and I would say that um, the Enneagram is not just received more deeply and easily when people are broken, but all spiritual truth 
And I think another distinction between the Enneagram and the Myers-Briggs or any of the other tests out there is that it really is a spiritual tool and there is spiritual truth that's built right into it. And therefore, uh, when, when a heart is broken, that heart is open and can actually receive in a way that's very different. Why don't you and I just not say anything else and just let him keep going? Because I'm just dying to say something. No, but you know what? If he actually starts to talk to about us that with that kind of clarity and, yeah. and goodness yeah. and kindness, we yeah. could, I mean, I'd be hired in a kite, right? Wouldn't you? Yeah. Articulate. Yeah, he's really Very good. articulate. Mm. You know, you have smart friends. I do. So, uh, who love me? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, here's what I, I want to say about the Enneagram in relation to what you just shared, Michael, and that is that it's the it's the one thing I know, and you guys are therapists and I'm not, but... It's the one thing I know that in the same system shows you where you're broken and offers you exactly what you need to fix it or to heal it or to recognize it and uh, transform it, perhaps, would be a good way to talk about that. Um, tell everybody, uh, if if you are willing to do that, a little bit about you and Julianne, what your numbers are, and, you know, just a little. No, that's that's top secret. I cannot share that publicly. <laughs> I can I, I wrote a book about my sexual addiction, but I will not tell you my Enneagram number. <laughs> no, I, uh, I am a drum roll, please. I'm a two. I am a helper or a giver. Yeah, you're me. And we're the best yeah, we, number, but so, you can still contribute to the show. But two and two equals four. Oh, there you go. So I, I resonated with almost everything you said as you presented about your own number. And, um, I mean, I just laugh every time I'm traveling and I'm in a hotel and I start to pick up the room before the housekeeper gets there. <laughs> um, because you said that's not OCD, Michael. That's your heart that wants to serve and give and help others. And I, I just chuckle about it now. But that kind of clarity was so helpful. And um, I, I kind of knew I was a helper and a giver. But before that, I had always had, I guess, what you call number envy. You know, I wanted to be an eight or a three or somebody that was... And, no, and I'm, you and don't I'm, want to be an eight. Jim Chase right? is an eight. You don't want to be an eight. Trust me. It's a good thing that he's at the controls then. Yeah. So it's, it's really led to a deep sense of self-acceptance or a deeper sense of self-acceptance. Um, Julianne, on the other hand, is a one that yeah. is... Uh, what do you guys call the one in the road that leads back to you? Uh, we call him the perfectionist, but sometimes they're called okay. the reformer. Right. The reformer is, is what I call her because that goes over better on the home front. Exactly. I was going to say that's very smart. People tried. See, he's lots, a two. He's being caring. Yeah, he's lots being of caring. ones tried to get us to use the reformer, but we just, we, we talked about it a lot. We just didn't yeah. feel like we could do it. Well, that's because the, you know what, the reason for that is, isn't because uh, uh, we just, you know, happen to have some kind of like weird uh, fixation on the word perfectionist, but we the really one of the purposes of the book is just to help people figure out their number. Yeah, and so you know that I mean, you say perfectionist around someone who's a perfectionist, and mm -hmm. it's okay. That must be me. Yeah. Go ahead, Mike. By the way, we just actually completely interrupted you, which we're never supposed to do. Go. That's that's what GarageBand is for, or Pro Tools, <laughs> or whatever you're using. So, um, so Julianne is a is a one or the perfectionist and the breakthrough at the conference, I think it was the Enneagram boot camp, the one day version or a mini version of it, the one day teaching, know your number. And um, when you shared the illustration about a one will, you know, the helper will load the dishwasher, that's me, and the one will come along and rearrange it. And it's not because I'm a terrible person or I'm an idiot and I don't know how to load the dishwasher, but because she actually sees a better way of doing it. Right. And that created a conversation that opened up lots of space in our heart and between us to, to look at other data like, oh, 
I just interpreted that uh, I don't know how to load a dishwasher or I am an idiot versus there's something that's not malicious or uh, unkind in her. She just is wired to see the world, to make it better and to always be geared toward making it perfect. So really, really good stuff in our relationship in terms of the counseling that I do which is intensive counseling where I've got people for a very limited of time. Right now, I'm actually exploring ways that I can use the Enneagram, and I'm hoping to use the road that leads back to you as a way of giving people uh, a real strong sense of what their number is and then being able to use that in therapy. Yeah, It'll can, work. Sorry, so hold on. So I got to tell you something that's funny. So this isn't actually so funny, but you'll understand, you'll appreciate it. But, <laughs> all right, so you know when I had those dark moments right in the book, like really – because, I mean, I'm, you know, it's, it's understandable. You know, it's not like I'm a, like totally a drama king. It, it's long hours in a room, and we had a tight deadline, right? We had a very tight deadline, and I would, I would have dark times if I was locked in a room with you. <laughs> okay. So, anyhow, um, here's the thing. You've been locked in a room with me for two days doing these podcasts. Anyway, never mind. So, hey, Michael. I meant for four months writing a book. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, Michael... Uh, I would, in those sort of really dark times, he has seen about six iterations of the book. Because I, I literally sent him stuff starting the day I started writing. And I, probably four or five times I sent him the manuscript and I said, please tell me I'm not out of my mind, that this actually makes some sense. And like, like if you want to have someone encourage you and, and lift you up, like you want to call it too. You yeah, know, in we're this situation, good at that. In this particular situation, he was awesome. I mean, that's yeah. it, so. In other words, I guess what I'm saying is, that knowing other people's numbers too kind of lets you know where the resources are a little bit beyond just being, you know, innate, innately picking it up. Maybe you say, "Man, I need, I need someone who's got this gift yeah. today to help me out." Yeah, need some heart space. Yeah, yeah. So you could you could make an iPhone app where you put people on your speed dial according to their enneagram number. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's. Yeah, we could use a heart and a light bulb and a yeah something for yeah. We'll yeah. talk about that later. Okay, that'd be good. Yeah, yeah. Michael, let's talk about the uh, you and your own journey um, in recovery and in you know developing self knowledge and all that stuff. And how has the Enneagram helped you spiritually speaking in your relationship with God? Your understanding of what it means to be a person of faith. How how's the Enneagram sort of worked into that for you? I think the biggest way that has helped me is generically with self-awareness and self-understanding with this idea that it's really hard to love God or love others if you don't have self-knowledge. And I know that you address that in your book. I think the other thing, and I'm going to not do a good word, uh, I'm not going to do a good job of describing the words that you use, but this idea of the message that was needed and the message that was heard, as that's described, mm-hmm. that brings tremendous clarity. So, Suzanne, will you talk about that, those, those two sides of the coin for each number? Um, yeah, essentially, um, that work is adapted from Rizzo and Hudson, and they have uh, what, they call wound, uh, what they call unconscious childhood messages and lost childhood messages. That's and, it. Yeah, and they, they did some, a really good job with that. We have a lot of respect for that. We um, are working ourselves with messages that are referred to as wounding messages and healing messages. And in some senses, for the numbers, those are the same, but in some senses, from our feedback that we've gotten, they're a little bit different. But for you and I, 
the the whole idea that the message we long to hear is twos is that we are wanted. That is a bottomless pit because I want to be wanted by the person I run into who can't reach the cereal on the top shelf at the grocery store. You know, if I get it for her, then I think we're friends. And it's exhausting, but if she just walks away, it's exhausting because <laughs> it costs right. me so much. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, and I think when, uh, if, if we were going to talk about in your marriage, when what Julianne just longs to hear and believe is that she's good, then you can't just walk up to somebody who's a two and say, I want you, or to somebody who's a one and say, you're good. You have to live into that and show them that. And I just don't know that we give very many relationships that much time these days. Oh, that's so true. So true. I just want to add one more thing, and that is for new listeners who don't know a lot about the Enneagram, that your Enneagram number is not determined by your behavior. It's determined by motivation for behavior. And when we talk about that desire to hear that you're wanted or to hear that you're good, that's a big motivator for us. Yeah, you know, um, just by way of, you know, by being transparent, you know, Suzanne and I have really struggled with this whole wounding message, healing message thing. We've wrestled it in the book. And, you know, honestly, I'm still ambivalent about some of the answers that we came up with because I think, you know, there's no single message. You know, you can't aggregate a life of, you know, millions of messages and say, well, you know, here is the uh, sum total of all those messages, you know, pithily put into five words, you know. I, I think this reflects the fact that the Enneagram has been a work in progress for, you know, a thousand, a couple, you know, who knows how long, right? It's, it's been a work in progress. And, and I think for, for me, those messages are a work in progress. You know, like I'm, I'm still saying, okay, gosh, I'm teasing. How can I most clearly say, you know, what, what message a four didn't hear and needs to hear? And, I, and also because I think they change in a lifetime. I, I think that they're, they're, there's, there's some, they shift. What do you think, Mike? Are you talking about the number shifting or the messages shifting? No, the messages, message. like the messages you need to hear. Um, I think they're developmental. I think they're developmentally, uh, you know, just tied to certain periods in life. I, you know, it hasn't I think shifted. So. It has, I'm sorry, Michael. It hasn't shifted for me, but I think it's because I'm adopted. Now you go ahead. Yeah, I'm not adopted, but I have an adopted child, and uh, I think that the the messages for me tend to stay the same. Uh, I put a lot of stock in developmental theory, so I, I, I kind of want it to be that way, but it would almost be nice if the message and the needed message were, were to shift. Um, for, for me, there's just a monotony and a repetition to finding myself over and over and over again, wrestling with the clarity that both the wounding message and the healing message offers. Yeah, I just don't think, personally, I just don't think that, I think that's true for twos. I think it's true for ones. I think there's a lot of numbers for the message is really clear. Mm -hmm. I think for other numbers, they really haven't been nailed. I mean, because I, you know, I don't think fours are nailed. Well, you know? yeah. And, you know, I think we would add to that, too, that you're a wordsmith. And so every word has so mm. much meaning for you. I, I'm not negating what you're saying. Right. I'm just adding to what you're saying. Here's why I struggle with that stuff. And also, Michael, and you can talk to this, too. You know how people say, well, you know, fours grew up in this kind of house or fives grew up and, you know, had this kind of childhood experience. Like, I find that to be a little dangerous because, you know, everyone's story is different. And, and so if you say this is the kind of house you grew up in or you had this experience growing up, I'm always like, 
man, you may have just talked someone out of being an eight who is an eight because they don't relate to that story. Yeah, I agree with that. And so I'm always like, uh, hold that lightly. Um, because you're so uh, impressively credentialed and the sense that you've used your credentials to really help people walk through narrow places, and I'm so sure that the Enneagram is safe and helpful, I want to know if you would be willing to talk about um, how you would explain the Enneagram to people who are leery of it or who are afraid of it or who um, see it as something that that might not be safe. I think the biggest encounter that I run into in my circles are that people will just have this kind of categorical sense because they've heard from someone who heard from someone that it's a new age tool. And the minute that I uh, begin to explain a little bit of the history, that it's a wisdom tradition passed down initially orally, that even though it's not uh, as empirically validated as some of the other measures out there, that there are significant scholars and writers who have written about this extensively, people kind of go, oh, well, I had I had no idea. I think people kind of think it's somewhere between woo-woo and kumbaya um and and <laughs> woo woo i don't even i, I, mean, yeah. I got the kumbaya but you, you're gonna have to school me on woo woo later on i will okay. i'll school you i don't want to know what you yeah think go to is. urban dictionary dot 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 com ian okay <laughs> <laughs> all right michael keep going what, do you, what else do you tell them um i i tell people that it's an opportunity to gain self-awareness and self-knowledge and i use the analogy of two sides of the same point on the one side that it helps people to have clarity and understanding about their brokenness. And also uh, it helps people to, to understand ways that they take their brokenness into their own hands and, and, and form a, a personality or a persona that ultimately ends up working against them. And I find that once people get a taste of the helpfulness of it, that, uh, that they develop a real fascination with it. And, and I also like the fact that it's so accessible, which is one of the reasons I'm so excited about your book is that you've really made it accessible. And the way that the book is written, um, it's just funny and engaging and informative and, and profo profoundly helpful. Mm. So I, I can't wait for people to discover it and for more people to be able to, to be blessed by it. Wow. Continue. No, we're not. That's enough. Really? Of that. oh, enough talk that. about your writing. <laughs> so one of the things that I usually talk about when I'm teaching that is I always say that you, you can never change how you see. All you can do is change what you do with how you see. Mm, I love that. I do too. And I've never asked this question before, and I'm so excited to hear your answer. How does that statement, you can never change how you see, you can only change what you do with how you see, fit into the kind of intense work you do in, uh, with, with people who are struggling with addiction? Wow, that's a it's a great question, and I, and I'm going to take that quote and uh, ponder that because there's a lot of depth to that. But I think you know, with addictions in particular, and we do a lot of work around sexual addictions, but that's that's not the only kind. We we don't deal with substances, but process addictions. There's so much of an attachment to shame and self loathing, and to say it in the strongest way, uh, self hatred. So, you know, if you if you embrace this idea that you can't do anything with the way that you see, it really becomes an opportunity to develop self-acceptance 
and to cultivate self-compassion. And as people resist self-acceptance, that becomes a doorway and an opportunity into conversations about, well, well, why don't you accept yourself? I truly believe in some broken part of my soul that I would somehow be more valuable, more wanted, et cetera, if I was able to produce or act or be like that other number. So ultimately, I forget who said it. It's probably an amalgam of, 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 of some saints, but that all true spirituality eventually boils down to self-acceptance because we have been deeply loved and embraced by divine love. And so um, we can make choices about what we do with how I see. So if, uh, if I see the world as an opportunity to give and to be helpful as, as a two, what I can do about that is to rein myself in when that helping and giving is coming out of a, a weak or wounded place inside of myself, or if it's coming out of uh, messages that I believe about myself that are, you know, they smell like smoke and they're from the pit of hell. Um, and so uh, I think that, that the first part of that is accepting who you are has huge implications for addictions. And then there's empowerment in the second half of it that I don't have to change the core of who I am. I can begin to make choices on a day-to-day basis that will, in one sense, release the real me, and hopefully some of the not real me will kind of fall off and fall away. Yeah, boy, that's, that's, that's really well that's said. Mm-hmm. So, so, Mike, you, you and I, um, we've known each other a long time, and uh, we've been, done a lot of ministry together over the years. You and I and Suzanne come from a Christian background, but, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all of our listeners do, but we do. We come out of that space. Right. I'm because we do, and because we have so much experience. And why do you think it is that that so many people, particularly church people, I mean, I'm just going to say what I think on that, struggle or have such resistance to the idea of self-compassion? But in fact, I would just—they're almost yeah. What, why do you, I'm not going to say more? What, why does it that that? It's that, very interesting how how the confluence of this conversation because I've actually been thinking and writing about this very very subject. Um, I, I think that it, in, in what, from our Christian perspective, what we would call a fallen reality where this world that we live in is not the way it was originally designed to be, where we, we do not live connected to love as the very foundation of our being. Um, I think there's a reflex where we want to reject kindness and we want to reject uh, love because it keeps us in control. Self-sufficiency uh, really does work for us in one sense. Our independence and our autonomy keeps us in a position of not wanting to trust, not wanting to be vulnerable. And self-compassion really is, is, a, is a statement and a practice of giving up control. Self-compassion is saying, I'm not going to try to manage who I am. doesn't mean that I won't make intentional choices about becoming more or toward personal growth, but that I'm okay just the way I am is a sense of surrender and giving up control. And therefore, that kind of goes against this reflex of living in this world outside of divine love. Mm. Oh, that's really good. Yeah, that is rich, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it is so rich. And, and you know, I, um, I, I don't know if this would apply to you guys, because both of you have your own wounds as well. But in my woundedness as a child of, of not being able to understand why I wasn't wanted, um, it, it just automatically leads you to believe that you're flawed. And I think we live in a culture that tells us all constantly that we're not enough. 
we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're not tall enough, we're not pretty enough, we're not thin enough, we're not, we're not enough. And I, um, I think we are um, aggressive enough culturally in the West that if you tell us what we have to do to be enough, then we're going to get on the, the track and try. And then they've turned, they, I don't know who that is, but that has been turned into, and if you have these things, you'll be enough. And I think the Enneagram has something to teach to all of that in terms of being able to embrace that the best part of you is the worst part of you. Mm. That's brilliant. If I can make one more comment, I really I really like that statement again, Suzanne, the best part of you is, is also the, the worst part of you, right. and the worst part of you is the best part of you. Right. I love that. You know, Ian, I don't know if this is where you were going to go with this in relation to the church, but on a very face value level, many churches that would be on the conservative or certainly fundamentalist side of belief, there's often a message that is explicitly said that it is wrong to love yourself. And I, I speak in groups and organizations that are on the more conservative side all the time, and there, there is a top-down message that it says that any focus on self is wrong, any sense of loving yourself is wrong, and I, I don't think that could be any further from the truth. Yeah. I mean, how, how dare we attach the word love, God is love, and love is patient, and love is kind. How dare we attach that to anything, including self-love, that, that would be labeled bad or something that we shouldn't do. And I think what people do is they confuse self-indulgence and narcissism, which is a pathological form of love or self-love, with self-love. And of course, in Matthew 22, uh, Jesus is being grilled by the religious establishment of the day, and they say, what's the most important thing in all the Bible, command-wise? He doesn't skip a beat, and he says, love the Lord your God with all of who you are, your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And there's that little kind of hidden commandment there that we are to love ourselves, but that's not equal to self-indulgence or being selfish or being egocentric. It's about caring for ourselves and giving the same level of compassion to ourselves that God would give to us and that he calls us to give to others as well. Yeah, boy, that is... that. <clears throat> These are incredibly important messages for people, and they're messages that you know really echo a lot of what you and I right. believe uh, about life. About uh, Michael, you and I have spoken about this so much, and I'm going to say something a little controversial, but we kind of hack some people off. But you and I have spoken a lot about original sin and about this whole idea of depravity, you know, in, in the Reformed tradition. I'm going to get killed on this one, but. Um, and how I struggle with the doctrine of original sin. You know what I mean? Like, like I just don't understand. Is this on a molecular level? Is this a proclivity issue? Is this, you know, you know, the cell? I don't know. But I do believe in this thing called original vulnerability. That like we that. are born vulnerable. And, you know, the moment we get here, we start to be uh, assaulted by so many messages. Now, we may not be, you know, responsible for the symmetry of the wounds that we have or the types of, but we are responsible for, for the journey of healing and, and transformation in the midst of them. Mike, you do so much good, good work around, around this. And, and what you just said was so helpful because, you know, without compassion, the acknowledgement that this is the way things are, uh, you'll never heal. And the more you actually uh, participate in this sort of self uh, criticism and self-loathing, you actually entrench or reinforce the worst things 
about yourself. Well, and in, you know, in Enneagram language, then what we would say that, that that is when you try to use your personality to fix your personality. Right. And you just fall deeper in the hole. Yeah. And, and none of it has a ring of freedom to it because it's all about striving and an attempt to somehow make myself more than I am when all healthy spirituality, whether Christian or otherwise, really is about freedom. Right, right. You know, I, um, I'm finding it very difficult to watch people try to fall in love with a God that they uh, are afraid of. Yeah, I don't, you can't do it. You, I see that all the time. Yeah, you just can't do it. You, I, you can't do it. Yeah, that's why, that's why I'm so drawn to Paul Young and his writing in The Shack and Crossroads and The Eve and, uh, of course, Richard Rohr and, and so many others that are, that are pointing to a God who is revealed in the person of Jesus. Not, mm-hmm. not a doctrine, not a set of creeds, not an institution, but uh, a, a divine reality that is revealed in a person who was humble and who walked the earth and said, the most spiritual thing you can do is to be poor in spirit. Yeah. Mm. One of the things Richard Rohr says while we're talking about him is he says that um, Jesus uh, didn't come to prove that he was God. He came to show us how to be human. And I think the Enneagram wisdom, the wisdom of the Enneagram helps us embrace our humanity and have compassion and respect for the humanity of all persons. Mm. Hey, so, Michael, can I ask you a question, buddy? Um, yeah. Uh, what are you most excited about these days? Just, you know, just what are you just in general? What are you most excited about? I am excited about resting in my soul. And I would tell you that um, I, I wish I could tell you that that's because of some great spiritual revelation. But uh, my wife and I are just in a transition with uh, kids and life where we've come through a really difficult year. And I'm just exhaling. And, um, and that feels really, really good physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally. And I'm, I'm becoming more and more aware that, that we are meant to exhale in the spiritual life. That is such good work for a two. You, you know, we're not resters. <laughs> it's like, yeah. what, who should I help next? I yeah. know the resters is not a word, but it is today. It is today. Yeah. yeah. Our, our thing is, oh. I also, I also think the rest, resters is actually a family in Wisconsin that owns a dairy farm. <laughs> <laughs> Who have now just sued us for cops, some kind of patent infringement of some kind. Yeah, I hear you. Michael, what, um, you know, we, you and I are always popping books around, and I always love to hear what people are reading or what's really moved them lately in terms of music or books or culture, film. What? What's been, what's been speaking to you on those things? Uh, I've been listening to a lot of Mumford & Sons lately. I'm working on another book, and one of the launching points for the book, which is about uh, addiction, is uh, their book called Roll Away the Stone. And there's yeah. a lyric that says, You told me that I would find a home in the fragile substance of my soul, but I have filled this void with things unreal, and all the while my character it steals. Um, so I, I love... Uh, the lyrics that they write, the poetry, the the folk sound that's kind of fresh. Um, right now, I am reading "The Body Keeps the Score" by Bessel van der Kolk, which is a very clinical book on post traumatic stress disorder. Um, and and so I'm so late, a lot late of, night late night comfort reading. Yeah, you yeah, can, you but, can send us a one pager on that book. Yeah, but but believe it or not, the reason why I went with that as opposed to you know the politically correct. Well, I'm reading Henry now and you know again is that. 
I believe the connection between our brain and our body and how our brain, for a variety of different reasons, when we experience distress, as our brain begins to shoot out cortisol and adrenaline, it's really hard to rest spiritually into who I am if I'm not aware that my body is having this reaction. And a lot of people beat themselves up because they're not praying enough or they're not reading their Bible enough or because of the reactions they're having. And I'm discovering in my work with addictions and other forms of recovery that as people begin to get in touch with their body, it actually opens the door to self-compassion and self-acceptance and the ability to be loved. You know, it's so interesting to me how we decide what we're going to read and give our time to, those of us who are readers. As you know, uh, we have a son who's in recovery, and I'm reading The Cartel right now. And, you know, I just decided I need to stop having opinions about drugs and availability and the drug trade and all of that. I, I need to study. So I got some more academic books, and I just thought, yeah, no, this isn't going to get it for me. And I heard that the cartel might teach me a little something about the demand. And, you know, uh, we seem to, as a country, often present ourselves as blameless and everybody else is responsible for the choices and the mistakes we're making. And I, I'm finding so much compassion for the people who are trapped in all the things that have to do with getting drugs and substances here for us to then struggle with in recovery communities. It's fascinating to me. All folks are just humans trying to make a way. That's, oh gosh. And, and, and that opens the door to compassion. Yeah. Michael, let's talk about addictions for a minute. And, um, cause you, you have such a wonderful way of, 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 of speaking about them. And I just, you know, gosh, it's just nobody I meet that there's no human being alive that doesn't struggle at some level with compulsive behavior to, as a way of dealing with uh, woundedness, right? Um, tell, tell me a little bit, tell, tell folks a little bit about your take on, on addictions. We've got a few minutes left, but just, I know that's a huge, wide open question, but you have such a great take on these things. What, what do you think the, the source of this hunger is in people's lives? Well, I'm the uh, the other book I'm reading right now, and it's a little less clinical, but it's it's a combination of deep, wonderful prose and clinical information by the Canadian physician Gaber Mate. Yeah. And the book is called "In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts." Oh, Great book. we've and, both been and, looking and, at that too. I love that book because it honors who we are as physiological beings, but there's a spiritual and emotional component to that, uh, where he looks at the difference between passion and addiction. But my, my own perspective on addiction is, um, and, and I went to my very first 12-step meeting when I was five years old. My dad died in August with 44 continuous years of sobriety, uh, 51 years in AA. And um, I was in a family drug rehab when I was nine years old. So I, I, I believe that addiction is a physiological reality, but fundamentally a spiritual problem. Because we are all created to connect and to attach our sense of self to someone and what we end up doing in our woundedness and in our sense of being dependent because we're human beings is we turn to people, substances, behaviors, and other things that we give ourselves to. And depending on what that is, when we give ourselves to it, we become attached to it because we were made for connection and attachment. And if it's something that has tremendous uh, substantive power, according to the wounds in our story, um, it might be something like like we all know people who have struggled profoundly with addiction. So um, 
I, I like the quote, in, Ian, that you introduced me to from Thomas Merton, who said, spirituality is about what we do with the unrest in our soul. Mm-hmm. And addiction is when we take the unrest in our soul to something or someone that's ultimately not life-giving. Yeah. And then it begins to drain the life out of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, um, I love that idea that, you know, uh, addiction, uh, I heard this in a meeting one time, a guy said, you know, in the beginning, they, 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 pro- they, they promise you everything and say it will cost you nothing. Mm-hmm. And in the end, it costs you everything and gives you nothing. Mm-hmm. That's I mean, that's, the, that's really sort of the sick you know, joke at the backside of, a, uh, of an addiction. And Michael, I'm glad that people like you are there to catch people when they, they're uh, really in the throes of the worst um, of what an addiction can do to a human life. We, we have so enjoyed having you on, my brother. Oh, it's so fun. Please tell Julianne hi for me, and I want you to know from my heart to yours, it's an honor to know you. Oh, thank you, Suzanne. You're always so gracious and kind. I can't wait to see you and give and get a hug from you. I'm ready. <laughs> Anytime. You're the best, my brother. I'll talk to you soon, all right? Bye-bye. Thank Blessings. you. Suzanne, he is a remarkable human being. Yes, he? he is. You introduced me to some of the nicest people. And you know, when we're doing our show, we get to hang out with some really top-shelf folks. Yeah, we do. We are lucky ducks. Yeah, we are. Man, this whole uh, this whole year, you and I, working yeah. on this book together, and uh, I mean, I just feel like this new stage in our lives where just the aperture is opening to new insight and to new wonder about what it means to be human. I'm grateful for that. I'm really grateful for it, too. And I, um, it's interesting to me that we we started out with such a call on our hearts to use the gifts we have individually and collectively to try to teach. Yeah. And we're learning so much. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's really a blessing. Yeah. Well, everybody, we hope you had a good time today. We did. And uh, we hope you'll come back again and be part of our, our family. This is, not, this is not our audience. This is our family. It's yeah. going to be our family, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. All right, then. Looking forward to next time. See you, everybody. You've been listening to The Road Back to You, looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram, produced by Jim Chafee, and our engineer is Brad Bass. Our theme music is provided by the band Waterdeep from their album Moment, written by Lori Chaffer. Please visit our website, www.theroadbacktoyou.com, for news, more podcasts, and a list of our public appearances around the country. And you can pre-order our book, the Road Back to You, An Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. And listen up, people. You don't want to miss our show next week. My good friend and three on the Enneagram, Dr. Jim Danaher, will be with us. He's a philosopher and an author. And so you better put on your big boy and big girl smart pants because it's going to be a good one. See you later. See you later.